sticky with you. <laughs> Yesterday was a really great event. Uh, I know many of you got out to see um, Tommy's special celebration. And while yesterday many were able to come together and celebrate Tommy's turning 90, today is actually the day of her birthday. And so, Tommy, we want to say thank you. We celebrate with you. Congratulations. 90 years. You know, Tommy, honestly, uh, your, your godly example, your heart of service, the love that you have for your family, the love that you have for the MCOC family is something that we, we treasure your godly example and just are so thankful for you and uh, certainly was great to be able to celebrate with you yesterday. I was thinking this week about the last couple of um, years that we've enjoyed, endured, depending on how you look at it. You know, recent years have taught us some uh, skills and taught us some tools that probably we would not have learned had it not been for a global pandemic. Prior to the outbreak, I had probably used Zoom about three times. And even today, I'm using Zoom several times a week. In fact, it's very, very common if somebody will say, hey, let's set a meeting, I will ask, I will ask, is this a Zoom? I want you to go back to 2019 and I want you to imagine that your boss walks in and says, I want to meet with you at 2 o'clock on Tuesday and you say, is this in person? And imagine the shocked look that would have been on their face like, what do you mean is this in person? What other way is there to have a meeting? Well, <laughs> time passes and we know there are a lot of ways to have a meeting. Zoom is an interesting thing. I did notice one thing about Zoom, that my jokes never land on Zoom. It appears that I am not remotely funny. <clears throat> All right, that was bad, that was bad. E even, even for me, that was bad. The other thing that I learned is Amazon. Amazon Prime, up until the time of the pandemic, I'd used Amazon Prime a few times, but I gotta tell you, I've become so good at it, and Sue Darby and I are so good at it that we play this Amazon Prime game where we come home at night and we see boxes in front of, in fact, if there's a night that there's not a box in front, I'm like, oh, hmm. And then if we see these boxes, we do this thing, do you remember what it is? I don't, I don't remember what it is. We're still living very much in a post-pandemic world, though. There's a prominent sociologist that uh, had an interview not too long ago, and I read the transcript of this particular interview, and he named this period of time, 2020 to today, he called it the era of languishing. The era of languishing. That's just terrible, isn't it? To think that we're living in a period of time that sociologists call the era of languishing. And yet, you know what? I see it. I see so many things about our world that really do show that there are challenges that are real and the challenges are still, still real. I, I see businesses that are having trouble with staffing issues. I see inflation and I see challenges that people have economically and I recognize that there are so many things that are still seeing to, uh, seeking recovery and they haven't gotten there yet. You know where I see it a lot? I see it in the generations. I see it in the generations. I see it in the millennials. And I see how the millennials were raised with this idea that we're going to graduate high school, we're going to go to college, we're going to graduate college, we're going to get married, we're going to get married, we're going to have a great job, we're going to buy a home, and, and we're going to move out into our lives. But the reality that they are facing, so many of them, 
Is that college is so expensive that they can't afford it. They're postponing their marriages because they don't have the, the, the finances to be able to do it. They're struggling to find that good first job. And the debt of college and the high prices of housing has made it so hard that many of them are moving back home with families. And they're not living out that life that they thought they were. Not to mention the fact that they can't stand boomers. And boomers make up all the potential employers. And so you got this real problem. There, there really is a challenge between boomers. The, the boomer and, um, and millennial thing is real. I, I heard a boomer just the other day who was really frustrated. He said, I can't stand these millennials, their arrogance. They walk around here like they rent the place. And I just thought that was too soon, too, too soon. My generation's no better. My generation is no better. When you talk about Generation X, you know, we're historically aloof and we're distant and we kind of stay to ourselves and, and stay. But you know what? We're struggling too. Our generation is struggling as well. We're not seeing our kids launch the way we thought they would. We're not providing for them the way we thought they would. The debt ratio income that we're st st uh, stuck with right now is much higher than we thought it was. Our retirement's not in place the way we thought it was. Our investments aren't working the way they thought they were going to. And we're struggling with higher levels of mental health crisis than almost any generation has for years and decades. It's real for us. It's real for the boomers. It's real because so many of those who are looking into the golden ages and they're looking at those periods of time that they thought they were going to be retiring or happen to work longer than they thought they were going to or they're going back to work. They're, they're, they're finding that their finances aren't lining up and they're struggling with this stage of their life at a time that they thought was going to be so different than it really is. You know, I, I understand. I understand that when the sociologists say this is a period of languishing, I can sympathize and so can you because we see it. And here's where I think there's something interesting that needs to be really considered as the church. Because into a world of darkness, into a world of languishing, into a world that's so desperate for hope, we have that message of hope. We, the church, we have been entrusted with this glorious great news, this good news, this, this light that shines into the darkness. And we are to be the bringers of hope, the purveyors of hope. We're the ones that are supposed to be the light bearers. But you know what I find is so true? is that in so many ways our lives are indiscernible from the world. We're struggling with the depths, with debt the same way the world around us is. It's tragic to admit it, but we're struggling with divorce at similar rates to what the world around us is struggling. Relationally, we're challenged in the same ways that the world is challenged. We're struggling with mental health and physical well-being in the same way that the world around us is. And yet what's so amazing about this is we have this enormous propensity, this enormous potential with the good news, with this beautiful relationship we have through God, through Je with God, through Jesus Christ, that we have this wonderful message for the world and we're not even benefiting fully from it ourselves. And even within our churches, churches are struggling with disunity and divisiveness and disruption. You know, for the ones who are tasked with the purpose of bringing joy to the world, we're in many cases not even bringing joy to ourselves, let alone a beautiful message to the world. Here's why I set all this up. Here's why I go into all this, partly because I just want to really depress everybody. No, the reason I bring all this up is because I want to connect it back to something we talked about at length last week. Last week we talked about what is our image, our picture in our mind of Jesus. And we talked about how for many of us, our picture of Jesus in our mind is sullen, sad eyes, kind of passively resigned, wearing the, the burden of the world, overly serious, meek and mild. In so many ways, it's terrible 
but we have concocted a languishing Jesus for a languishing world. And the reality of what we see in Scripture of who Jesus was when he was here on this earth is a far cry from the picture that we have often portrayed, both to ourselves and to the world around us. Is it any wonder that we're not greater purveyors of hope when the very purpose, the very reason, the very hope for joy that we have is so deadened in our picture, in our mind? We're not picturing a Jesus who is vibrant, who is real, and we're not portraying a vibrant Jesus to the world. In this, purpose, in this sermon series, we're trying to set the record straight a little bit. As to this Jesus, fully man and fully God experienced everything that we experience. The Hebrew writer says that this high priest, this man, experienced everything that we experience. All the highs and all the lows. He knew rejection and he knew betrayal and he knew loneliness. But he also knew laughter and he knew excitement and he knew enjoyment and he knew recreation. It may not come naturally to picture Jesus the way we saw him last week. But as we opened the word of God last week, we saw him picking on his friends playfully, poking fun at them, giving them little nicknames. That's not the Jesus that we often think of, but you know what? That's a Jesus that portrays reality. That's a Jesus that the world says, I can, I can connect to that. Do you know there's so many people in the world right now that are rejecting our Jesus because they're rejecting a false picture of our Jesus? Lately, there's been this great ad campaign that's been on TV, the, the He Gets Us thing that you might have seen. You, you see Bishop wearing his T-shirt and back of his sticker, I've got a hat from it. It, it. He gets us. You know, for so long, the world has said, I'm not interested in that Jesus. He seems sullen and sad and distant and holy and completely unrelatable. But that's not the picture of Scripture. The picture of Scripture gives us a very totally relatable, very interesting, engaging, even funny and playful Jesus. In a word, he's real. He's real. Maybe the church needs to embrace the real Jesus. And maybe the church needs to be serious about sharing the real Jesus with the world around us. In one of his famous teachings, Jesus is talking to a group of friends and there's a crowd out here and, and we as his secondary audience through what's recorded in Scripture, hear him say this. He says, in this world you will have trouble. We know that. We recognize that. But what's cool about that is he doesn't put a period there, he puts a comma there, and after that comma he says, but fear not, for I have overcome the world. I've overcome the world, Jesus says. I'm the answer to your problems. Jesus says, this world is troubling, but the answer to the trouble is me, Jesus says. I am the answer. If I were going to rewrite this for 2023, I might say it this way. In this world, you'll face hard times, but don't get caught up in the languishing of this world. I have overcome the world, and you don't need to be afraid anymore. Last week, we spent some time looking at Jesus, his enjoyment, his laughter, and his happiness, and we made the point that it's a family trait. Jesus gets that from his Father. We talked about last week how in the Old Testament, God is portrayed as dancing with celebration over his people, with rejoicing, with laughter. There's many elements that are anthropomorphic. They are human qualities ascribed to God, but they're qualities that we see God enjoying pleasure. And Jesus does as well. There's a third member of the Godhead, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. 
We saw last week that God the Father enjoys the good things in life, the, the pleasures, the happiness, the laughter, that His Son enjoys laughter and pleasantries. What about the Holy Spirit? Turn with me real quickly in your Bibles to Luke chapter 10. We're just going to hit this real fast and then we're going to get on to our story for today. If you're uh, using the Pew Bibles, it's on page 868 in those uh, Bibles there in the Pew. Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. We're asking the question, does the Holy Spirit enjoy? Does the Holy Spirit enjoy? Does the Holy Spirit have pleasure? Okay. Let me set the stage for you. In this particular chapter, what we have is um, Jesus has this group, this big group of followers. And out of this big group of followers, he chooses 72 people. And he goes to these 72 people and he says, I'm going to give you a special mission. I want you to go out to all these little villages all over the place. And I want you to announce to them that Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the one spoken of old, is here. He's coming. I want you to sort of prepare the way for me. I want you to sort of get everybody excited about me coming and let them know I'm here. Now, when he sent them out, he warned them. He said, now look, this isn't all going to be easy. Some people are going to reject your message. Some, sometimes entire villages are going to send you running. They're going to chase you out of town. He says, it's going to be hard. There's going to be challenges. There's going to be hardship." But when we get to verse 17, they've returned back to Jesus. And boy, do they have stories to tell. They have stories about their trip. Just as predicted, Jesus said some of them would have trouble and some of them did. Just as Jesus predicted, not everybody, everybody accepted. But notice with me in verse 17. Skip down to verse 17. When the 72 disciples returned, they joyfully reported to him. How did they return? They returned joyfully. So does that mean everything went great? No. Does that mean everything was perfect? No. Did every single person that they preached to receive the message? No. Did every single village that they go to open arms and celebrate them? No. And yet, when they carried out the mission Christ gave them, they did it with joy. This is a whole nother lesson for a whole nother time, but I'm just planting this seed here and we'll come back to it. What about it, MCOC? We've been given a mission by Christ. How are we going about the mission Christ gave us? They reported back joyfully. How are we? What is the attitude with which we are carrying out the mission of Christ? That's not the point for today's lesson. This is. Verse 18. Follow along. Yes, he told them, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Look, I have given you authority over all the power of the enemy. You can walk among snakes and scorpions and crush them. Nothing will injure you, but don't rejoice because evil spirits obey you. Rejoice because your names are registered in heaven. A lot of symbolic language there, a lot of things going on that aren't part of our discussion this morning. What we do see is Jesus is celebrating. Jesus is excited for them. I hear you, Jesus says. That is amazing. That is wonderful. I see you doing great things. Verse 21, at the same time, Jesus was filled with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Some translations will actually say this. This is awesome. Jesus was, it says, um, the Holy Spirit made Jesus happy. You see, one of the things that's part and parcel of the Christian condition is joy. 
we said that the Old Testament tells us about a God who is joyful. The New Testament shows us a Jesus who is joyful. And here we have a clear delineation that joy in the believer comes from the Holy Spirit. This isn't the only time we see this. This isn't the only time we see this. If the little kids were still here, I'd have them come up and sing the song. Uh, in the book of Galatians, Paul writes that when the Holy Spirit comes into our lives, when we let Christ take up residence, when we put him on in baptism, when the gift of the Holy Spirit is given to us, the Holy Spirit begins to transform us slowly and surely over time. And you remember how it goes? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, good, the fruits of the Spirit we call them. What's the second one on the list? The second one on the list is joy. The Holy Spirit promises to bring us joy. Right after love, the Holy Spirit promises to bring us joy. I think that's a really important message. I think it's a really important message. I think you and I need to stand seriously and look in the mirror and say, how am I reflecting the joy of the Holy Spirit? How is the Holy Spirit providing joy into my life? And if he is not, let me give you a hint. It's because we're resisting it, not because he can't do it. The joy of the Holy Spirit is a gift that is to be given to all believers. And it's not given for us. It's not given so that we can be, whew, isn't it great now that we have joy? What a great life we have. It's given so that we might go about the message of Christ to the world that needs it, carrying that joy because it's a message our world needs to hear. It's a message that we need to hear, and frankly, it's a message that I need to hear, and I know you do too. I know I'm killing this point, but I think it's important for you to understand. If we're going to talk about humor, if we're going to talk about enjoyment, we need to have a good theology. A good theology of humor and pleasure and enjoyment. And we have a God who celebrates. We have a, uh, we have a Savior who rejoices. And we have a Holy Spirit who provides us joy. So for us to somehow artificially remove all good emotions from Jesus and to somehow remove all good emotions from Christianity is a great disservice to what we have pictured for us. Now, to our stories this morning. I say stories because originally I had three. But as you can see from the time that we're in, we're going to reduce it to one for the sake of time. So we'll go with one story. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 7, the passage that Bishop read for us earlier. In your Bibles, it's on page 812. <clears throat> 812. We'll look at one story, make one point, and then we'll wrap up. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 7. While you're turning to that, I'll tell you something. Um, many, many years ago, I was introduced to a little book. It's a small, little slender volume. I don't think it's maybe 150 pages long. But it's, uh, it's entitled, The Humor of the Christ, and it's by a man named Elton Trueblood. Elton Trueblood may not be a familiar name to many of you, but Elton Trueblood is a, a Greek, a Greek, a Quaker. Um, he is a Quaker theologian and writer, and he usually tackles like really, really deep, meaty nuances of Scripture. He, he tackles some of the you know, stuff that, frankly, is way outside my pay grade, and I would never be able to understand a lot of his writings. But he wrote a little small book that's entitled The Humor of the Christ. And it was so out of keeping with what he wrote. This is a guy who writes on really deep topics, and for him to write about the humor of Jesus Christ was such an odd thing. And so he felt the need to explain himself, and he explained that in the introduction of his book, he said, here's why I wrote this book. 
He wrote this book because one night he was sitting at his kitchen table after dinner, as he did with his family, and his seven-year-old son was sitting beside him, reading in his Bible as he normally did at night, and suddenly the little boy fell out in uproarious laughter, just could not contain himself in that beautiful, innocent way that only little seven-year-old boys can do, uh, and girls too, but seven-year-old kids can do. There's this beauty of this, this spontaneous laughter, and he just looks at him and says, what, you're reading the Bible? What in the world is so funny in that? This is a guy who's given his whole life to studying the Bible, his whole life to reading Scripture, and he thought to himself, I don't remember ever laughing that hard at Scripture. What is so funny? The little boy was reading the story we're going to read right now. And it struck him as hilarious. And Elton thought to himself, this really is funny. This really is funny. We've said many times during this series of lessons, Jesus spoke in such a way that made people laugh until their sides hurt and think until their brains ached. This story is an example of that. A story that made him laugh until his sides hurt, but think until his brain ached. By the way, I've lost that book. If I loaned it to one of y'all, give it back, because I don't know where I put it. I look for it. Matthew chapter 7. Read along with me, starting in verse 7. Starting in verse 7. <clears throat> the story that cracked up young True Blood that night was this. Do not judge others, and you will not be judged. For you will be treated as you treat others. The standard you use in judging is the standard by which you will be judged. And why worry about a speck in your friend's eye when you have a log in your own? How can you think of your friend, let me help you get that speck out of your eye when you can't see past the log in your own eye? Hypocrite. First... Get rid of the log in your own eye. Then you will be able to see well enough to deal with the speck in your friend's eye. Now, this is a very serious topic. This is not as we would... This is not laughing matter. This is not the kind of thing that we typically would look at and say, this is a laughing matter. And it's not a laughing matter. It's a very, very significant and very important lesson. But Jesus goes about it in a way that uses humor to bring to mind a picture, and that picture brings across a very powerful message. And so while it is not a laughing matter, it is a matter of which we can laugh and learn the lesson that's there for us. You know, this is a whole thing about examining other people and nitpicking in their lives and, and, and looking for things that we can tear them down for, things that we can judge them for. And this is something that's absolutely a common issue that every single one of us deals with. There are two kinds of people in the world. There are the people who struggle with judgment and there are the people who lie about struggling with judgment because the, that is the bottom line. We're all going to do it. It is part of human nature. I am guilty of this. It is something I struggle with. And if you're honest with yourself, you struggle with this as well. There's, there are at least two reasons. That's a three. There are at least two reasons why we all struggle with this. They are matters of human nature. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's about the fact that we are humans living in a fallen world. These two truths make this an important subject for us to discuss. Here's the first. We are drawn to imperfection. We are drawn to imperfection. I want you to picture with me for a moment that we're standing in front of a, a window and we're looking out across a window. We're looking at a beautiful scene and we're admiring that scene together. And I reach up and I go, oh, look, there's a little smudge right here. <sighs> what will you see for the whole rest of the time that we're there? 
No matter how hard you try not to see it, you're not going to not see that smudge. Your eyes are going to be drawn to it. You're going to be continually looking at it. Oh, there is a smudge. Because we are drawn to imperfection. There is something about the human condition, the fallen state that we're in, that is drawn to, human, uh, that is drawn to imperfection. And that leads to the second. Here's why that is. Or at least this contributes to it. Because desperately we want to be better than everybody around us. We have a terrible, tragic, twisted bent to be better than people around us. And so if we can, here's the second reason, if we can find fault in somebody else, it makes us feel better about ourselves. If we can find fault in somebody else, it makes us feel better about ourselves. One of the greatest uh, unspoken lines that go around in our head is, well, at least I'm not like, and we all struggle with it. We all have that on loop in our minds. Because it is our natural inclination to look around and to see other people and to say, well, look at their problems, look at their faults, look at their flaws, look at what they're into. At least I'm not that. I feel so much better than that. I'm not dealing with what they are. I'm certainly better than he is. And what an incredibly twisted way to live life. Is it any wonder why we're not happier? Is it any wonder why we're not doing better at portraying the message of Christ to the world? And I'm not pointing you out and singling. I'm saying humanity. I'm saying Christianity. Because we're struggling with something profoundly deep here. And Jesus uses humor to just drive the point home. What he uses is hyperbolic humor. Hyperbolic just means an exaggeration. But it is really funny, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, seriously. You, you, you can't picture this in your mind without this being funny. You got one guy who's got a, a two-by-four sticking out of his head, and he's trying to reach around it with his good eye and see a speck in his friend's eye to try to somehow figure out a way to help out this other guy. There's no way you can look at this and not find humor in it. It is funny, and yet it is deadly serious. Because we are that guy with the log in his head. And instead of identifying the log in our own head, we go around with our one good eye finding the speck in everybody else's eye so that we can say, well, at least I'm not. And boy, I feel better than... And look at that imperfection. It wasn't for the sake of humor that Jesus told this story. It was for the sake of making his point. But the humor helped make his point. And it helped us to follow the keeping of many of his teaching formula. To laugh until our sides hurt, but to think until our brains ache. I would suggest to you that what this is is a very practical message that is a very desperate and impassioned plea from the Savior to ask us to look deeply within ourselves and to see those things that are displeasing to God. To see those things that are harmful to ourselves to see those things that are destructive to our mental well-being, see those things that are corrosive to our health, see those things that are cancerous to our relationships, to be able to identify them, to recognize them, to see them for what they are, and then to desperately plead to God to help us. The steps are simple. We need to identify our own log in the eye. We need to admit God, I've got a log in my eye. We need to confess, God, I need to repent of this log in my eye. I need you, God, to help remove this log in my eye. I need you to forgive me of this log in my eye. I need you to help me work past this. 
And then and only then and with the right attitude am I ready to reach out and help my friend with his speck. Because after that I'm not going to be judging him. Because I know that I just came through something much worse. I'm not going to be looking down on him because I'm going to recognize that I'm dealing with even a more serious sin than he is. I'm not going to be superior to him because I know that what I'm struggling with is every bit as real as what he or she is struggling with. I'm not going to hold it over the top of him or her because we're all just sinners saved by grace and relying on Jesus' blood. So I just ask you, how powerful is that? What an awesome message. And what a great way to deliver it with a humor that makes us think. I don't know where this message hits you. I don't know where on the spectrum you find yourself or where in this story you identify. But I will hazard a guess that as is true with all of Jesus' teachings, there's a message here for you. Just like there's a message here for me. Let's pray. Dear God, we come before you at the close of this lesson and we just hold our lives before you and we ask that you would help to identify within us where we find ourselves in this story and in this message. Where do we have a log in our eye? Where do we point out the speck in others? Where are we oblivious to our own faults and where are we highly judgmental of others? What do we need to confess before you, God? What do we need to ask you to help us remove from our life? How do we need you to help us move forward in this lesson? God, we thank you that you love us despite all of our flaws and all of our failings. And we thank you that you sent your son to die for us, and it's in his name we pray. Amen. This week I heard an um, illustration from my friend Caleb Dillinger. Caleb is the uh, pulpit minister at the Northland Church, and... Um, he was sharing this illustration that I thought was really powerful. Now, Caleb has a great deal more constitution than I do. He's a big fan of the, the Walking Dead, the zombie show, which not only have I never seen, I will never see, and it is completely because I am so incredibly scared of anything. I, 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 am, I am squeamish. I, I will have bad dreams. If I were to watch a commercial for that show, I think I would probably have bad dreams for a week. But my friend Caleb is really into that. And he was telling me that in the first episode, there was, in the first season, there was an episode where the humans got this great idea to hide from the zombies. Some of you have seen this. I, I, I'm relating this, you know, secondhand, so I'm probably all wrong on my details. But the point is that he said that the, the, the humans took blood and they lathered it all over themselves. And so when the zombies saw them or smelled them or whatever the zombies do, they identified that they were covered in blood and they assumed they were zombies too. And so it all went great until the rain came or something and they all got washed off and then it went bad. But the, the point is, he made the illustration and I thought it was so poignant. He said, isn't that somewhat similar to what we see with God? Because those of us who have been baptized have put on Christ. Scripture after scripture tells us it is the blood of Christ that cleanses us. It tells us that when God looks at us, sinful as we are, completely sinful, and he sees us covered in the blood of his son, he identifies us as his own. He sees us totally different because of the blood of his son. And I thought, what a powerful picture. 
I don't think I'm too hard because it'll give me nightmares. But what a powerful image. And one that I think has great power for us today. You know, this morning as we come together and we've sung these songs of praise and we've listened to this uh, lesson this morning and we've gone before God in prayer several times and we've surrounded his table and we've thought about the symbol of his son's death and all that it means to us. There comes a point where we think to ourselves, what then do I do with this? And that's where we are. You know, if you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you've never made him the Lord of your life, confessed of your sins, if you've never gone down in the waters of baptism to be clean and come out a new creation, we'd love to talk with you about that. Our leaders meet in the back of this room right here during this final song. And during the song, we'd invite you to come back and visit with us, share. We can pray together. We can talk about the next steps in your journey with Jesus. If we can be of help in any way this morning, won't you make that be known? We're going to stand together and sing as we close.